If there's one workplace issue that's hit the front pages more than any other in the last 18 months, it's probably harassment. At a recent CIPD conference, we asked delegates if they had stories to tell. Tell me, have you ever experienced bullying or harassment at work? In the hospitality industry, I used to be a waitress, so maybe a little bit of harassment from maybe male chef towards women. Not personally, no. Yes, yes, I've experienced it myself and also I've seen it happen to another HR. I have. And it's difficult sometimes because you feel very secluded, you've got no one to talk to. I advise organisations and I've heard some horrific stories. What sort of things? Um, interestingly, in my experience, it's mainly staff using procedures and policies such as grievance procedures to bully managers. Really? Now that's mm-hmm. the thing you don't hear much about. Absolutely. Yes. In what way? My first boss was very authoritarian, ruled by fear, and that resulted in uh, about eight or nine of his staff leaving in a very short period of time. How did the organisation help, or did they help? No, they didn't. They moved him sideways to a different department. Do you feel, if you search your conscience, that you might ever have yourself made someone feel bullied or harassed? That's a good question. Not knowingly, but I might have done. Myself, I haven't ever. It's hard to know where the boundaries are sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And I think sometimes you ask expectations of people that maybe you think you could do yourself, but they necessarily haven't got the skills or capabilities to doing that. And sometimes you maybe do step beyond where you should be in trying to get them to achieve what you want to do. The Conciliation Service ACAS provides free and impartial information and advice to employers and employees on all aspects of the workplace, including harassment. So I'm Julie Dennis and I'm the Head of Diversity and Inclusion at ACAS. There are various challenges for HR here, but perhaps the biggest is to create a culture where people feel they can come forward to tell HR or a line manager what's going on. But how should HR do that? There's a variety of ways that organisations can. I think the first steps that we would encourage from ACAS is having a policy in place that clearly sets out to all of your people, this is how we expect you to behave at work. And if people do not behave in that way or you feel that your colleagues are not living up to that behaviour, these are the steps you can take to raise a complaint, be that informally or formally. But I think there's a bit of caution that comes along with having a policy. A lot of organisations think that having a policy, that's it, that's job done. And actually a policy is only as good if you're making people aware of it. So having adequate training in place. Obviously, as you say, having a policy is one thing. Organisations acting on their policy is another. And many seem to have found it difficult to do so when it comes down to it. I wanted to ask you about transparency, because obviously organisations, Google and the rest have been criticised for dealing with these issues behind closed doors. There's a case for openness in the sense that other people may be encouraged to come forward if um, if disputes and complaints are talked about and discussed. There's an issue of fairness around... Do you want to talk about these things until there's evidence? How, how, how can organisations deal with that issue of how transparent to be when a complaint comes forward? 
Transparency, I think, is a really difficult one. I think we've all seen in the press people who've been accused of improper behaviour have had trial by the media. And we've seen that sometimes that's been a positive thing because it has made people come forward and speak out. But on some occasions, it's been a very negative thing where people have been subjected to false allegations and have their careers left in tatters. So what should the policy be? What should organisations do? We would advise that you should, you know, investigate, take all complaints seriously and investigate those uh, depending on the seriousness. Yes, try and do what the complainant would like you to do. Ask them first of all, what steps would you like us to take? But obviously there may be occasions where actually as an organisation you may say, I understand you don't want us to take this any further, but actually because of the seriousness of those allegations, we have a duty of care to you and we need to investigate that. But whilst we investigate that, we will look after you. We'll point you in the direction of support services, counselling, etc. But good employers should also put that provision in place for the people who are accused of uh, harassment and bullying. Because again, it's an allegation to begin with. So that person may not have done that or actually may not be aware that their behaviour is not acceptable. Most people that, you know, we deal with in ACAS, when they're actually confronted about their behaviour, they're normally mortified that what they've done has had such an impact on on somebody. And the first thing they want to do is just say sorry. And for some some situations, that's enough just for someone to say sorry. It's only when we've got really serious stuff that actually then we need to investigate that properly. Do you think most organisations actually have appropriately trained people to undertake the sort of investigations you're talking about? Because it's no one's day job, is it? And yet these are terribly sensitive and terribly important to the people involved. So there are some organisations out there where actually it is people's day jobs i know some big employers out there that now have yeah yeah for most of us it isn't and it's about actually us equipping our managers all managers to have those people skills on how to deal with investigations and having good guidance and policies in place it's also up for uh for hr professionals to support those managers that are undertaking investigations and be there throughout that process and let managers know that that support is available because you could go on a training course but then not have to do an investigation for a number of years so that's a little bit about the kind of role of hr professionals in these situations what about the role of line managers I think in terms of um, line managers, they need to, again, uh, investigate any complaint promptly and quickly and take it seriously. Employees don't normally raise complaints if something's not happened. Very few people that like to cause a bit of trouble because someone's upset them for something else. Also, that you know, managers need to undertake that investigation and be independent. So if they're not the right person to do that investigation, they may be the deciding manager on a grievance case. They may want to appoint somebody else to undertake that investigation. And what about responses to cases where it evidently is the case that something has happened that shouldn't have happened? How should organisations respond? Is there a case for leniency? Should it be zero tolerance? What should it be? We would always um, promote zero tolerance. You know, legislation makes it very clear. 
especially if we are looking at uh, cases that are in breach of the Equality Act, for example. You know, so we know that um, there are protected characteristics where it is a breach of the Equality Act. So you are leaving yourself exposed to further legal action if you don't deal with those cases. And more and more sectors are coming under scrutiny here, aren't they? Um, science and medicine, particularly at the moment, in the last few months, we've seen a lot of stories in the news about that. How do you see this playing out? How do you see that? Because over, the, I suppose the Me Too movement obviously has put some energy behind it, but it was coming before. Where's it going? I think we're seeing a sea of change happening. I've been working in as a DNI professional for nearly twenty years, and I think it feels different this time. I think people now. Their tolerance level has, has changed. I think as a society, we're starting to see that if we stand up and speak out, then we can stop this behaviour. Non-disclosure agreements are a big issue in this debate. When we raised them with delegates at that CIPD conference, one woman told us about her own experience. I left my last place of employment and was bullied quite significantly there by my line manager. With the support of my union rep, I managed to negotiate a package uh, which meant we didn't have to go to court, because, uh, but I settled with them out of court. Interesting. Did they make you sign a non-disclosure agreement? Yes, they did, yes. What do you think about that? It's appalling. Really, I was treated really appallingly. But at the time, I was in a difficult situation personally. I was going through a divorce and I didn't have the time, energy or finances to take time off work and, and, and fight them. So I just I took, I took what they offered me and signed the non-disclosure agreement and left. That's not an unusual story, and last year, Prime Minister Theresa May said it was clear some employers were using NDAs unethically. Then, in November, the Women and Equalities Select Committee launched an inquiry into the use of NDAs in discrimination cases. For Ben Wilmot, head of public policy at the CIPD, the run-up to Christmas suddenly became very busy indeed. Women and Equalities Select Committee launched a, a call for evidence around the use of uh, NDAs in relation to harassment and discrimination cases in the workplace. So CIPD jumped into action, <laughs> pulled together practitioners and lawyers, expert members, and gathered up some views and handed them over to the Select Committee. What um, questions are the committee asking or interrogating? Well, the three main areas they were interested in were Firstly, should NDAs be banned for this type of use? Uh, secondly, if they were banned, what impact would that have on individuals who might have relied on those types of agreements? And thirdly, if you don't ban NDAs, then what safeguards can you put on their use to make sure that they are used in a, in a way that benefits victims or people who are being falsely accused, for example? Our approach was to conduct a series of telephone interviews with some of our senior members working across different organisations. 
And so members of the uh, public policy team conducted those interviews and together that helped bring our evidence base together. And lawyers too. Yeah, we had, I think, uh, two or three employment lawyers who are CIPD members who fed into that process as well. So they all stepped up just before Christmas and gave you their opinion. Absolutely. And I think this again you know, highlights how important member engagement is for CIPD in terms of influencing the public policy debate. Yeah. Um, the sorts of insights that, that you know, these senior practitioners give to policymakers is gold dust. And so, you know, we're incredibly grateful to any of our members who, you know, who give their time to provide that, that sort of insight for us. But there was a lot of disagreement about NDAs. Yes, so we had a, a split and we had a probably a slight majority who are in favour of the responsible youth of uh, NDAs when used as part of, of a settlement or compromise agreement when someone is exiting the business. What do they see as the pros? Well, I think the pros, particularly in relation to issues around sexual harassment or uh, discrimination, that quite often it's one person's word against another. And so these individuals quite often are quite nervous or, or scared of, of having their version of events forensically taken apart, particularly if they go to court when they there is no objective evidence for them to to refer to so it literally is one person's word against another a real ordeal yeah absolutely and so i think in those circumstances the feeling was if people who are victims or the the, the evidence in the round suggests that their version is one that does carry a very persuasive weight behind it then for them being able to have some acknowledgement that they have been treated poorly to have some financial compensation and being able to leave the organisation and move on is a the right thing for them. And presumably they also take the view that some of these victims just won't come forward and won't stay the course if they feel they have to be publicly questioned about it. And so perpetrators will actually get off scot-free. Well, and that was exactly the, the, the other point, that actually by seeking to, to do the ethical thing, by, you know, by banning NDAs, you actually doing the opposite of what you want. You're actually stopping people from having a legitimate exit and ability to uh, have some form of recompense and acknowledgement and leave these issues behind them. And so actually that might mean we have more hidden issues around you know, sexual harassment, bullying or discrimination in the workplace. So that was definitely one perspective. The other perspective is practitioners. You've got some practitioners who said, you know, in, in 30 years of, you know, working in different organisations. I've never seen the use of an NDA in, in a way that has benefited the, the victim or the right. alleged victim. Because there certainly are some strong voices that think it should be zero tolerance, they should be banned. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I suppose from a, a really hard eth- ethical perspective, you could see the logic behind that. But I think the reality of the workplace is sometimes quite messy. And I think that you know, we need to make sure that we don't ultimately disadvantage victims. Another perspective came out was that NDAs can also be useful for individuals who are subject to uh, false allegations um, in in this area as well. Yes, when we talked to ACAS, they highlighted that issue too, that this the other side of these disagreements or disputes is not to be forgotten. No, and absolutely. And that um, people have been accused of these... Behaviours need to be thought of too. And so, you know, we, we really do have some quite conflicting views on this. 
The debate about the use of NDAs looks set to be a fierce one. Ben Wilmot and his team fed back that wide range of views about how they might be changed, regulated or even scrapped to the Women and Equalities Committee. That was before Christmas. Now they're busy preparing for the next stage. We're recording this in January. What's happening next is that you're pulling together a round table of experts to sit down in a room and chew this over. Yeah, I really want to understand, you know, how we can reconcile these these, these polarised opinions. What is the, the the correct balance? And understand what the CIPD perspective on this really should be. We we will be giving evidence to the Women and Equality Select Committee at the beginning of March. So we're making sure that we've got that new data to make sure that when we when we go in front of the committee that um, you know we do have a, uh, a a very solid line on this. We don't know what the future of NDAs will be yet, but right now, if there is an NDA, one thing is clear: HR still has a vital role to play. I think what's gone wrong with NDAs is that those organisations think that once they've signed that, that's job done, instead of actually then having a conversation with that individual and making it clear that their behaviour is not acceptable. Because they've done an NDA, so obviously there's something they're not wanting to get out. So actually I think HR have a really clear role in actually... Do they put that person on training? Do they give them some awareness? Or do they start having those conversations around, actually, you do need to modify your behaviour because this cannot carry on, regardless of how, how good you are in this organisation? Yes, or how valuable, because obviously this it tends to be more senior people that these NDAs are, uh, are written around. But it can be quite a difficult conversation. And I recognise that there are HR professionals out there, especially in smaller organisations, that actually that would be a very difficult conversation to have. So although the textbook answer or in the real world is try and tackle it, it's also very difficult for some of our colleagues out there to deal with that. This debate is everywhere now. So have we reached a tipping point? I think the debate is really healthy. I think because it it really does get to grips with the reality of these sorts of very, very difficult issues around the employment relationship, harassment, uh, bullying and discrimination in, in the workplace, particularly when it's one person's word against the other. And so I think it it's really useful for employers, HR practitioners to understand what does good look like in this area? What, what are the, the areas that they need to be wary of? And that's why CIPD is going to be producing its updated guidance around these sorts of issues to provide a bit more clarity on what is good practice. That's all for this month, but needless to say, we'll be watching this one closely, so listen out for updates as that consultation moves forward. You can see the CIPD submission to the Women and Equalities Select Committee on the CIPD site. Next month, we'll be looking at the future of flexible working, Who will be asking for it and what will it look like? Thanks for listening.